0: This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable today, you may have already heard of Dr. Adam Fraser. Adam is a peak performance researcher, consultant and speaker, and he's worked with elite athletes, sporting teams, special forces soldiers, and business professionals at all levels. His expertise includes the psychology performance, improvement of productivity, transformational leadership, the engagement of teams, work-life balance, and the development of high-performing cultures. He conducts his own research, partnering with universities across the globe. Behind his work, his clients include CBA, Westpac, Optus, IBM, PwC, and the Department of Education, just to name a few. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Unstoppable Dr. Adam Fraser, mate. Welcome, mate.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much. Great to have
0: you here. Great to have a fellow obsessive here. Um, <laughs> I was, I had the same level of anticipation that I had with um, Steve Kotler. You, you're probably familiar with Steve Kotler's work. Um, yeah, uh, he wrote the book The Art of Impossible. Have you read that yet? No. I haven't. Oh, my God, mate, you've got to I get your know. hands He's... on this. Uh, Stephen Kotler, he uh, originally started off as a journalist, you know, like 30, 40 years ago, covering X Games, but he started to really want to understand why, you know, some of these athletes were able to do things that were literally considered impossible in the yeah. morning, and by afternoon, someone was doing it, and then it was being iterated on the next day. So he spent the last 30 years... Uh, studying in-depth uh, performance across you know a whole range of different fields, and yeah, I think you uh, you and him would get on like a house on fire.
1: Yeah, because it reminds me, I read a book called The Rise of Superman. He wrote that. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, that was a
0: cracker. It's a great. He's got a cool. He's got a number of great books, um, and I've read most of them. But his best book by far, and this isn't supposed to be a promo for Steve, is um, is uh, the uh, the Art of Impossible. And if you haven't read it, mate, I just knowing what I know about you, you will just absolutely, you know, gobble that up.
1: Yeah, because what I love is they like so many of us looked at those extreme athletes and went, "Oh man, you got something wrong with wrong with you," whereas he went. Well, how are they having this massive improvement in performance? So, yeah. oh, cool. Well, yeah, I'll have to, have to add well, that to the actually, list.
0: Actually, while we're there, we'll start there before we get into yeah. your story. One of the things that he identified with, um, and he noticed it specifically with X Games Athletes, Is He noticed about 98, it was actually more than 98 of the percentile of X game athletes who were performing at a really high level, you know, in the top three, four, five percent came from backgrounds where there was enormous amounts of um, stress in the home. So drug abuse, alcohol abuse, physical abuse, you know, heightened levels of, in some cases, what people refer to as trauma. And it's really interesting because, you know, although there's no research into it, I did ask him the question that if he thought that, you know, these people who grew up in traumatic environments actually learned how to, uh, you know, un- either unconsciously or consciously be able to deal with levels of stress that most people can't. And so yeah. then when they're looking down a half pipe, they're like, well, this is nothing compared to my home life. Not that they think about that consciously, but it's just something that they're more able for, able to, uh, to regulate.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think there's heaps in that. I mean, I, I wrote a book uh, recently called Strive, which is, and the tagline is embrace the gift of struggle. And what the book's all about is the fact that getting your ass kicked is really, really important.
0: It's such a requirement.
1: Yeah. And um, and it's almost a rite of passage. And in that book, what I talk about, one of the most fascinating groups I've ever interviewed is trust lawyers. So lawyers that look after huge family, like billion dollar family trusts, as well as like um, you know trusts for uh, indigenous groups, and so basically they manage uh, this huge pot of money. And what they were talking about is rich third generation rich kids are disasters, yeah. like complete disasters, no
0: resilience because
1: they haven't they haven't been in the trenches, they yeah. haven't fought it out. And one of the things that triggered that book was um, I spoke at a, the Dalai Lama conference and. I didn't know it, but the the princess of Kuwait was in the audience, uh, Shaker Intasar, and she called me afterwards, and it was hilarious because I thought my mates were pranking me, and I was <laughs> like, I was so horrible to her, and oh god, yeah, I was, I was demanding because she literally said, "Hey, we're trying to make the country of Kuwait happier. We we want you to." Come to Kuwait and help us. And I'm like, yeah, right. and I'll need a camel and you can pay me in <laughs> rubies. And but anyway, so, but I went there and, and number one, fell in love with the people of Kuwait and the country. And it's so, they're so beautiful and generous. But one of their problems is they're, so wealthy, and there's only about a million Kuwaiti nationals that they're so well looked after. It's starting to have dysfunctional impacts on yeah, them. Wow! That they they literally don't have enough struggle. So I, I hear you about the 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 extreme athletes. And even I was listening to something where Mike Tyson was talking about how his son wanted to get into boxing, and he said to his son, "Like you don't want to get in the ring with a guy like me," he said. I was a freaking animal and I'll eat you up. And what he talked about was that most boxers come from that sort of background. Mm. And, so um, and he said my, the problem with my son was he's just, he wasn't hardened like I was. Yeah, It had too good a life. So yeah, getting your ass kicked is important.
0: You know, and it's so interesting because it's much like life. Like, you know, often people trying to are avoid getting their ass kicked and oftentimes yeah. people are trying to avoid failure. And this is something I've observed in business, like failure and I wouldn't just, you know, uh, categorize this to business. I'd say this to life is a key requirement of progress because it's not until we, in instance in business, fail that we recognise whatever skill, knowledge, and experience that is that is missing. But again, yeah. in life, it's not until we experience our ass getting kicked that we get to develop a, an extra layer of skin that enables us to be able to be better, you know, more resilient uh, uh, next time. So, mate, my my biggest question for anyone who's um, as obsessive about performance as you are in the space that we play. How did you get into this?
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, when I left school, um, academically, I did really well. So I had a lot of choice in terms of going to uni and what course. And I didn't know what to do, so I picked engineering. And I hated it. (laughs) And, and kind of a, that Christmas holidays, a mate of mine and I were at the beach and we just went, oh, I can't go back to engineering. So I changed courses to Biomed, which is a blend of psychology and physiology, and, and I really loved it. And I was going to go down the psychologist path, but I just went, I do not want to sit in a room with some dude whinging about his life to me for, for an hour. Like I didn't want to be a counsellor, but I wanted to research psychology. So... Um, after yeah, I right. finished my degree, I went to the AIS for a while because I thought I want to work with elite athletes and actually hated that job. It was boring and repetitive. And once you get over the glamour of, oh, my God, it's Alexander Popoff or Cole Vandekype or Colin Jackson, like once that wears off. You just go, oh man, this is really bloody boring. So I went back and did it. A-
0: I got to ask you that: why is it? Because you're getting to basically practice on some of the best, you know, bodies in the in the world and tune their performance, yeah. psychology psychologically. What 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 fell out?
1: But it's just like repetitive, and it's the same things. And yeah, right. you know, it, it's it's it just wasn't as nuanced as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, fair So um, yeah, so I went back to uni, did a PhD in the area of Um, you know, how lifestyle affects our well-being, our health, our happiness, our quality of life, and like, you know, our habits and how that translates into, you know, the bigger picture of our life. So um, after that, I was an academic at a university and it was actually really weird. Like a friend of mine called me and said, I want to do this course on how to teach adults because we were lecturing. And, And I said to her, oh, yeah, that looks great. Let's sign up for it. But I forgot to sign up for the course. And it was, it was run by a guy called Doug Maloof, who was one of Australia's best presenters. And she calls me the day before and goes, you coming to that course tomorrow? And I went, oh, shit, I forgot to sign up. So I call the, the guy who, like, is organizing it, and he goes, you wouldn't believe it. He said, that thing's been booked out for five months. He said, a guy just rang up and canceled. You can have his spot. Mm-hmm. So, I show up to this thing, and this guy was masterful. Like, he was funny and articulate. And in the break, at morning tea, I just walked up and said, I want to do what you do. Like, I need you to teach me how to do this. I said, I'm an academic. I'm dying inside. Like, I I want to do this. And he kind of treated me like the karate kid. (laughs) Like, no, no, look, he kind of, I turn up to the office, and he made me wait for six hours, and then, he made me talk to a wall, like gave me this passage and said, "I'll see you in a month, and then I come back." And it was like freaking wax off, wax, wax on, on, wax, wax off. off,
0: paint the fence.
1: But he like treated me like shit for about a year, and and it was just to see if I was serious. And I just hung in there, and wow. was, there was only two people he said that really stuck to that me and another speaker called Peter Sheen I don't know if you I do heard of
0: Peter Sheen yeah yeah
1: yeah <laughs> no, he's one of my best mates and yeah, nice. um, we, we went through that process together but um, I just started presenting to organizations and um, I fell in love with business and and the people and yeah so I I what I really wanted to do was when I looked at the speakers around if you were academically really strong and had good research you were boring ass. And and a lot of the speakers that were entertaining didn't really have an academic background. So I went, well, how do I blend research with entertainment and, and accessibility? So that's where I am.
0: Yeah, wow. And so at what point did you get the bent towards performance? And what was the driver that was really pushing that along?
1: Yeah, I think it's just always been ingrained. I've always been really obsessed about how do you do something, but how do you do it better? How do you improve? How do you evolve? Um and when you see people like you would have this as well with your work, when you see people change behavior and get impact, like that rotates my crops something terrible. (laughs) Like I just, yeah, I love it. It's it just it's it's that juice. Yeah. Um so yeah, and and yeah, where I spend my time is a combination of presenting research and running big sort of interventions and programs.
0: But it's interesting because, you know, it's much like, um, you know, stress, was the buzzword going back you know about 5 or 6 years ago based on you know alleviating stress in the workplace stress was the biggest killer you know stress was the biggest cost to businesses now i'm seeing a, a very strong shift and it's not that businesses and individuals are moving away from you know the importance of acknowledging and and regulating and working through stress Performance seems to be something that's getting hotter and hotter and hotter and it just seems to me that people are starting to become aware that Wow, there is a little bit of a possible formula to performing at a higher level and so I guess from your perspective, you know, if I was to act, you know, as maybe some of the audience would be, which is maybe having less information than what I've been able to absorb so far, you know, I think I would find it curious looking at the world and go, well, why is it that there's only a, you know, a very small percentage of people that compete, you know, at the Olympics? Why is it that there's only a very small percentage of people that make it through to, you know, become an NRL professional or, you know, be able to sprint in hundred meters or, you know, that have the ability to make it into SAS or Navy SEALs yeah. as an example. So yeah, yeah. why is, performance in your mind something that has become so attractive but more importantly why does it appear that some people have it and some people don't?
1: God that's a big question. I I really like what you're saying in terms of the shift from stress to performance and the big one I'm seeing is that if you think about the last sort of 10 to 15 years we've had happiness and positive psychology rammed down our throats and Like, most movements start out with good intent and often can have a a dark side to them. And the dark side of the happiness piece is we've been taught that positive emotion is good and good for us, negative emotion is bad and bad for us. so so wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we've got this lens of- Judgment. um, That, yeah, I should just feel good all the time. But the problem with that is that, like struggle, challenge, discomfort, growth—feels yeah. like shit, like that. Yes, yeah, so feels true. uncomfortable,
0: and often is associated as being a, ne- a negative experience. Oh my god, that's painful. That's bad.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, I, I think one of the big blocks to performance is the inability to sit with discomfort. Mm. And and on so many levels. I mean, even if you think about COVID and what's happening and how much we're kind of numbing ourselves to not feel anything. And I see this like, I mean, actually I'd love your opinion on this too. Sure. I, I see men really struggle with emotional discomfort. Yes. And and yeah. whenever it comes up, they just check out. And yeah, I've just watched a mate of mine totally screw his life up because he can't sit with, tolerate, articulate the negative emotion he's going through. So mm. it's just like, I'll react with anger and I'll withdraw. So yeah, uh, what's, what's your opinion on that?
0: Look, I, w- I would say, and, you know, maybe this is going to be a bit controversial, but I think it comes back to childhood. You know, I think so many of us, you know, weren't really shown how to um, express and to feel emotions, but more importantly, mm-hmm. in a way where we can regulate them, you know, and, yeah. and one of the things I've observed, and it's so interesting, you know, the core for performance that I've discovered is actually underlying the ability to be able to manage stress and the yeah. ability to be able to manage our emotions but when i think about you know my childhood and many other people's childhood You know, I don't think there are a lot of people who grew up in an environment where the parents knew how to express emotions in a healthy way or more importantly, knew how to regulate emotions and stress in healthy ways. And oftentimes when you're a child and you experience, you know, an emotional event, you know, trauma is trauma is trauma. Whether you're taking a lollipop or smacking a child to a child's brain, it's still trauma. And if a child is freaking out and then the parents has an inability to be able to sit with their child freaking out. And allow their child to express that emotion in its full, you know, and, and metabolize the emotions and metabolize the fear that's coming up. The child learns by the ch- the parent's response what that means. And oftentimes when a child yeah. is in flux, the parent yells at the child, stop crying, yeah. go to your room. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so they go, well, I feel unsafe already. You're just validating them unsafe. Shit, how do you? And so it becomes suppressed. And then it gets yeah. expressed in unhealthy ways.
1: I think you nailed it. I think you're so bang on. And So we wrote the Strive book and that was much more about how does the individual respond to struggle and discomfort. Mm. What we're looking at now is how do you lead a team through struggle or how do you lead a child through struggle? And we came up with this model called the 4H model, which stands for heart, head, hands, high five. Oh, I like that. And it's basically, so when someone's going through struggle, you, you lead them through these paths. But the first... Point number one is heart, and you've got to connect on a heart level. And some people might go, oh, that's a bit wanky. But if someone's in distress, what you need to do is validate and and name and verbalize their emotion. So this is something I've got two daughters, 8 and 11, and they're both very emotional children. And when they have meltdowns, you know, previously, because I kind of modeled my parents, it's like – stop doing that, or when they cry, we're told don't cry or don't get angry, or even when they're struggling learning, oh, don't get upset, you just got to pay. And rather what I've been doing with them is naming and validating their emotions. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, so like my one of my daughters had a meltdown about something with school and you know my natural reaction is to go oh you're just being ridiculous but I just sat down and went I understand why you're angry or I can see that you're frustrated or when I'm learning something new I sometimes think I'm stupid or, or I can't do it is that how you feel and it just really like it calms them down and then the, the head part is to get them to logically pull apart what's going on for you, mm. for me, how do I feel, what am I saying to myself? The hands bit is, well, what's the tangible action you can take to improve? And then the high five is you circle back around later and celebrate the victory. Nice. But- It all stems from emotion, because if they're emotionally off the charts, you can't have the logic conversation. (laughs) Not with a child. And this is what a lot of people don't realise. Not with an adult. Even with adults, (laughs) children,
0: they've got, you know, I think until the age of, I think it's about somewhere between eight and 12, when a child gets into distress, you know, we've heard the term flip the lid.
1: Yeah, yeah, Dan Siegel's. Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
0: we've discovered from paediatric research, when a child goes into meltdown, they have no access to their neocortex. They yeah. have no logical function whatsoever, and so we, yeah. as parents, go, "Well, fuck! This is quite practical. Let's talk about this logically." And the yeah. kid's like, "I got no logic in my system, Dad. I just got all these yeah. emotions that feel really big, and I don't feel, and I either do feel safe to express them so that they can metabolize, yeah. or yeah. I don't feel safe to express them, and I'm going to trap them in my central nervous system, and it's going to leak into yeah. my tissue, and you know, become you know stuff that shows up later in life, uh, and in some cases, not even later in life."
1: Man, I saw. I've seen this recently with like a family member who went through a divorce and the dad was really dysfunctional and he had two sons and one was like expressing how he was feeling and and making trouble for them. And the other one was the good kid. And and the dad kept saying, why can't you be more like Mm -hmm. your brother? And that's the kid that's just not saying anything. And like he's hit 17 and he has gone off like off in the worst kind of way because the kids repress so much every time he like he sees his brother speak up and he gets in trouble like that psychological oh, safety wow. so i mean coming back around to your original point i think you're so bang on with our ability to articulate express or even just talk about the fact that we don't feel good and and one of the things in in the book, we discuss is that the suicide rate of super high wealthy kids is very high because oh anytime God. they express discomfort, they're told, Well, what do you got to complain about? You freaking rich kids. Stop yeah. being such an entitled pain in the butt and just get on with it. So anytime they go, Oh, I, I'm not happy or I'm not, they're just told, get over yourself. So yeah, that suppression of emotion is huge.
0: So when we look at performance like to to you what is the core of good performance or more importantly high performance
1: this is I'm having a real torn relationship with this because what I often see and you'd know this as well from speaking to people is that high performance often brings a lot of dysfunctional like dysfunction with it yeah. to be really exceptional like we have to be very selfish, very driven. We tend to neglect other parts of our life. So I'm kind of wrestling with mm. is high performance all it's cracked up to be and, and do we want oh. – Hate to use a word but a more balanced Well,
0: can, life. I, can, I, can I offer a, maybe an alternative perspective because you know one we get enormous success with our we've got a, a client community called k2 elite and it's about one in three of these guys to one in four will 2x to 10x in their first 18 months to two years now Jeez. in most cases these are million dollar 510 you know up to 300 million dollar businesses that we're working with in some cases a few startups but yeah. one of the things that we do that's a little bit different is we spend a disproportionate amount of time on psychology and performance psychology but one of the things yeah. that we do a little bit differently and I don't know, and I think this is going to land with you based on what you've just said, is I've identified one of the blocks to performance is emotional baggage, you know, and in some cases, psychological baggage. And so, you know, if you're trying to run a hundred meter race, but you're carrying three suitcases, you're going to move a lot slower, you know, yeah, but totally. if, you, if you can, you know, find an environment, a community, an individual where you can sit down and unpack that, to me, I've found that as, a, as one of the most important aspects of the consistency of high performance is working on ourselves working on yeah. our dysfunction you know, you know shedding the light on where we do have darkness that is expressed in unhealthy ways so that it can come to the surface and you know be worked on and yeah. I've, I've discovered that the, the, the more because and you've probably seen this as well the more we focus on performance the more we seem to fall into the category where we have increased levels of stress and burnout
1: yeah totally
0: whereas if I believe if we can encompass that performance is about Learning how to deal with emotions, learning how to regulate stress, learning how to focus on recovery, you know, and this is the thing, you know, and Steve uh, Steve Kotler talks about this in his book, The Art of Impossible, where he goes, you know, there are seven, I think it was the seven areas of grit. And one of the areas of grit that he identified that was required in order to maintain high levels of performance is what he called recovery grit yeah and i was like when you say recovery grit what do you mean he goes well when you take time off do you feel uncomfortable i said "Fuck yeah he goes do you feel like you're wasting time i'm like "Fuck yeah he goes does it feel really uncomfortable I'm like "Fuck yeah he goes it requires grit to get through that it yeah, requires yeah. grit to take time off in order to be able to recover regulate and repair in order for you to come back and do your best but the reason that most people don't you know engage in recovery is because it feels really uncomfortable they feel yeah. guilty
1: oh yeah, I love that. I mean, we, we're doing a study and a program with partners in professional services firms. So you often see high levels of burnout. And what the firm was doing is teaching them resilience, like you know how to be more resilient cognitively. And we just said, hey, let's not go into this with any preconceived conceptions about let's study these people and really pull them apart and find out what's the problem their resilience is off the charts. Like these people are cognitively so strong, like to get, to be a partner in a professional services firm. like Yeah. You got to handle a lot of crap and what they have is not a resilience problem. They have a recovery Uh, problem, meaning they just never stop. Yep. And so what we were teaching them is the ability to, and the practice of recovery. Like how do I rejuvenate? How do I connect? And, um, yeah, I think you're so right about that. But oh, that's the other thing I was going to say. We're also starting this study to look at burnout in women and, and what drives it. And, and what the initial research is showing is exactly what you just articulated, is the emotional discomfort mm. from self-care is mm. so high, they would rather drive themselves into the ground and fall apart because that feels better than I'm going to address the fact that I don't think I'm worthy of looking after myself or what if someone calls me selfish or what if someone well, hints that I'm not looking after someone and and it's it just comes back to yeah it comes back to exactly what you said that ability to to manage the the grit of yeah this feels really crap but I'm still going to do it anyway
0: but it's interesting because I started to take myself apart and go why is it I feel so uncomfortable why is it that so many people feel uncomfortable in recovery and And this is purely speculation, but one of the things I believe that prevents people from having recovery is it requires space. And in most cases, it requires time and sitting still, lying down, you know, getting a massage, sitting in a sauna, being still. And then, you know, that takes me back to my very first Vipassana retreat where, you know, I was meditating. (laughs) I did it seven times. You'd think I would have learned (laughs) my lesson, (laughs) but I still remember. You know, you're meditating from four thirty in the morning till nine thirty at night. You have a couple of breaks, but you're just sitting with yourself. You can't talk to anyone. You can't look at anyone. They're separating the men and the women, and you have to just sit in your own shit from you know from four thirty in the morning until nine thirty at night. And it's really uncomfortable because all of your stuff comes up. But yeah. this is where I think the opportunity is because it's when the stuff comes up that's the light being shed on the darkness. That's the light being shed on the wound. The wounds come to the surface, saying, "Okay, here is what I, it needs to be addressed." And we am going, "No, fuck that shit. I'd rather just work." <laughs>
1: Yeah, totally. I I think actually I want your opinion on this. I was thinking about this the other day. And if you if you look at our devices, we we never get bored anymore. Like if you think, if you're a kid, even if you don't have a lot of friends, you still got so much stimulation where you can grab a screen. And I was thinking about my childhood and you know, as a teenager, I've had my heart broken and i'm lying on my bed and i'm listening to pink floyd and i'm freaking <laughs> crying like your I'm eyes out crying but i'm i'm and like what i remember is i had a really sporty upbringing and i had lots of kids that lived around me so like lots of social interaction but i also had those moments where i sat on my bed and yeah listened to pink floyd or iron maiden and, and i'm i'm thinking about my life and my world and what's going on and why did that happen and God, I had that falling out with that friend. Why? Like there was a lot of self-reflection and analysis. Mm. And I think one of the challenges today is we just don't have that. Because mm. the moment we get uncomfortable, like you said, the moment a little bit of shit comes up, we go, oh, screw that. And I'll, I'll push that down through stimulation.
0: Especially when it comes to the showing of emotion, especially when it comes to men, because we're taught men yeah. don't cry. Yeah, totally. But, you know, I say this to everyone and anyone, you know, if I'm working with someone and they have a release and they, they break down and they cry, I'll then ask them once they've finished the release, how do you feel now? They're like, oh, yeah. I feel fucking amazing. Yeah. And so that's right because you just metabolized all of that emotion. It's no longer sitting in there causing, you know, like a toxic waste. You've allowed yeah. your body to metabolize that and get it out it feels so much better. But, yeah, you know, some of told-
1: Masculinity thing, yeah.
0: Toxic masculinity it uh, it really does uh raise a lot of questions around what you know what do, if 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 we are so misunderstood from a masculinity perspective if if men has, even themselves don't understand themselves you know how do we you know start to understand what a healthy form of masculinity is
1: yeah to huge. I, mean, I think that's a that's a big need moving forward
0: so mate when it comes to performance, like what are some of the low hanging pieces of fruit that you've been able to identify? Like when you're working with, you know, elite professionals or elite special forces or elite professional athletes, what are some of the things that when you start working, go, okay, here's a couple of low hanging pieces of fruit that if we do this, we should be able to notch up a few, a few points of extra performance.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so many levers we can pull from the, the recovery one, which is absolutely essential. And you talk about actually, I, I got to work with and and do some stuff with the special forces guys. And a mate of mine was in the SAS, and I remember going out with some of his mates, which was the wildest night I've ever had. <laughs> but they were talking about the Carter course, which was that is the three week course that they have to go through to get into the SAS, and it's just hell on wheels. Like it's, and and I was talking to them, and I said, what's the common? theme, like, what do you need to do really well? And and what everyone said is recovery. They said, like, just push as hard as you need to. He said, the guys that fall apart come out at like a million miles. But he said, do as, as much as you need. But when you have those moments of recovery where you can, like, relax, regenerate, he said, like, all of them said that was the key thing. So I suppose, yeah, there's so many things we could talk about here. I think the biggest one, and this is what I'm starting to really look into on a deep level, is that when it comes to performance in any regard, whether we want to be a good parent, run a good business, market yourself, obviously it's the narrative in our head and the emotions we feel are the things that hold us back. And what we've been taught is this very linear model of if you – Run into challenge and you feel negative thought and emotion, you have to make that negative thought and emotion positive thought and emotion before you can act. like you know if you doubt mm. yourself or have imposter syndrome, what we're taught is fight that voice, have a better view of yourself, and then you'll be able to be successful in business. And what we're seeing in our research is that that linear model r- rarely occurs mm. and and our, Desire to move our negative thoughts and emotions into positive ones before we can act just leads to massive levels of procrastination. So what we're seeing in our research is that true high performers can, like, conduct a bypass, and that is where they sit with or accept the fact that they have negative thought and emotion, but they can still act mm. Even in that state. And I think what poor performers have is they expect to feel good before they can act.
0: Oh, it's so true.
1: Yeah. And and if you go back to those extreme athletes, they like people like Laird Hamilton before he surfs Chowpo, talks about the fact that I still have fear. Base jumpers talk about that fear is very important. Um, even I was listening to this. Uh, I, I don't know whether you follow uh, George Saint Pierre. You oh, know the yeah, MMA fight. Yeah,
0: he's smart man. Weapon.
1: And what he talks about is that five minutes before the fight, he's literally looking for a door to run away. And he said, "He said I hate fighting. He said I love the art and the training and the the progress, but I hate fighting." And he said, "If it wasn't for the guys in the room, I'd take off." And he said, I feel massive doubt. I start to predict um, that I'm going to lose and have disaster. And he said, what I go through is a process where I just accept that that's what I do before a fight. That's how I feel. And then I make the conscious choice of I'm going out there and I'm going to focus on the dynamics and I'm going to do this. So it's not that he's sitting there going, oh my God, oh, I feel really negative. This is a disaster. It's like, that's my process. I always feel like that, but then he does this bypass of, yeah, well, it's normal to feel that way, and I'm going to do, I'm going to do the right behaviour regardless. Mm. And a fascinating study was done in the US where they looked at athletes and before competition, and most people go, you shouldn't get nervous, you shouldn't feel anxious. That's bullshit. And yeah, yeah, come but on. that, that only had a negative impact on performance if the athlete thought they shouldn't be nervous or anxious. So if the athlete went, well, of course I'm nervous and and I go through this where I start to get scared and worried, but that's just part of my process.
0: But it's also, I believe like anxiety, (laughs) uh, stress and pressure to an elite performer. I actually think they're a critical ingredient in high performance. Totally, you know, and it reminds me of this um, statement that I heard um, a commentator say. It was, this is going back many years ago when Serena Williams was in the Wimbledon finals and it was like, you know, a five-hour match. It was down to, you know, double break point or whatever it is. And they're like, oh, there's so much pressure on Serena right now to get this next point. And then the next commentator goes, well, that's the thing, John. Pressure isn't pressure to a champion. It's the opportunity to perform. And this is one of the things that I realized in my life early on that I realized that I actually did my best under stress. Totally. And so what I started to do, and maybe you can relate to this, I used to create stress just to perform. Yeah. You know, I'd create chaos in my life just to perform. And I, you know, and I, and I, I, I matured and learned how to regulate that. But this is, I think, something that a lot of people don't realize is once you get to a level of elite performance, the pressure doesn't go away, it's intensified. The stress doesn't go away, it's intensified. The amount of emotions that flood through your system don't go away, they're intensified. But these individuals have done the work over an extensive period of time to be able to have their system regulate that level of activity, to be able to channel it psychologically and physiologically into their performance. And yeah. I, and this is where I think, you know, most people are going, well, if I, once I learn how to regulate my stress, I won't be stressed anymore. No, you'll just know how to deal with it better. Once I learn how to yeah. regulate my emotions and I won't be emotional anymore. No, you'll just have better uh, capabilities to be able to regulate it. Um, but yeah. I, I do think most people don't realize that stress, emotions, pressure, they're actually critical ingredients in performance. And it's not the absence of them that makes yeah. us perform better. It's the utilization of that chemistry yeah. that enables us to produce what would be considered impossible results.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And what we're focusing on in our research currently and what we're teaching people is the ability to externalize those thoughts and emotions. Mm. So what happens is too often we, we have a thought or an emotion and we think that's us. We, we, are, you know, we go, well, I'm stressed or I'm I'm depressed rather than I'm having a depressive thought. And so what we're practicing is this externalization of it. And, you know, in terms of the research, this is called act therapy or psychological flexibility is the ability to kind of push your thoughts and emotions almost off to the side where you don't let it run the show. And you'd reflect, you'd know this as a keynote speaker is sometimes before a big keynote, I would get stressed and I'd start to go, oh, my God, you're not prepared or this group's not going to like it. And that negative voice would overwhelm me. And then I start to picture that that voice came from the two old guys in the Muppets. You know, the-
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love those
1: dudes that, that heckle. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, I just got this voice in my head that heckles me before I go out on stage, and it's still there, but it I don't pay attention to it as much, and it doesn't run my behavior. And I started to look at did other people practice this, and I had a fascinating interaction with a woman. That does like aerial stunts. So, really dangerous stuff. If she screws up, she's like, she's going to make a mess of herself. And I said to her, like, before you perform, do you have those negative thoughts and emotions? And she's like, Have you seen what I do? Of course I do. Like, I'm doing some dangerous stuff. And I said, How do you regulate those? And she goes, Do you mean Kevin? And I'm like, I don't know who's Kevin. Like, who's Kevin? And and I said, I don't know who Kevin is. But how do you manage that voice? She's like, Yeah, that's Kevin. I'm like, Who the hell's Kevin? She'd actually created a character. Yeah, wow. So there's part of a brain that before performance, literally heckles her. But she goes, Well, that's just Kevin. And and she said, I can't get rid of Kevin, but I can put him off to the side. And I go, Yeah, it's almost. She says, almost like a a radio or music in the background that I don't really pay attention to. It's there. Mm -hmm. But as I'm going out, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to do that. This is I'll do this step. And we've been sharing that concept with people and they've flipped out over it. Like, so I've got a new keynote called no thanks, Kevin. And it (laughs) talks about like, how do we, how do we do that? But people send me emails going, Holy shit. Like, yeah, before a hard conversation, that voice would, talk me out of having it, where mm. I'd go. Oh, are you going to screw this up? Or they're going to get upset or offended? And people are going, yeah. Well, that's just Kevin. Or before a sales pitch, like even I shared this with the the senior partners at Price Waterhouse. And a couple of months later, when I caught up with them, they go, "We bloody love Kevin." Like before we have a do, do a big pitch, we go, "How's you Kevin?" <laughs> Someone might go, "Kevin's under control," or "Far out, Kevin had me Kevin's up right. last night." Yeah. 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 So part of our research is looking at how do I feel these things that often get in the way but put them off to the side? And, and with women and burnout, what we're teaching them is stop waiting to feel, not feel guilty anymore. Like you're going to feel guilty. Mm. But that's Kevin. And rather than he runs your behaviour, go, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm taking a day off and I feel guilty. Of course I feel guilty. I always feel guilty but I'm still going to do it. Mm. So that's kind of in the performance realm, what we're looking at is that, that ability to externalize rather than let it run our behavior. It's so yeah, so that's kind of the thing we're focusing on.
0: Angela Duckworth Smith, you know, she's probably most well-known from the wow. work that she's done in, around grit, you know, her TEDx yeah. talk, the fact that she charges a quarter of a million dollars us for a, a keynote. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. She's but brilliant. She sir. is. She's absolutely brilliant. She's so and smart. You know, she's, she's, she's done a lot in terms of, you know, bringing a level of understanding around, you know, not just the importance of grit and the importance of resilience, but how it's acquired. But she also identified, you know, the obstacles that some people face when trying to, you know, either train grit or train resilience. And, you know, she talks about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. What's your experience with people who are trying to develop resilience, but their mindset is getting in the way?
1: Well... I mean, I've, I've got to present with Carol Dweck who did that research on fixed mindset and growth mindset. Yep. And, you know, she's number she's one, phenomenal. lovely, but yeah, two, like she's such an incredible brain. But a lot of research in that area has, is now going, well, similar to what we said before. So if I attempt something and I have a fixed mindset, I have to believe that I have I have to have a growth mindset before I take action. So it's almost like, Even her stuff is turn that frown upside down. And a lot of people are now going, well, can you recognize that you have a fixed mindset, which is Kevin talking to you going, yeah, you suck at that. And rather than I have to adopt a a growth mindset before I can act, it's the acceptance of I have a fixed mindset about that thing, but I'm still going to do the behavior I need to do. Mm. So in that area, it's 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 moving more away from you have to adopt a growth mindset to you're going to have varied fixed mindsets. But can you accept that you have that, acknowledge it and still do the behavior even though you don't believe that you're amazing at that thing?
0: Do you think there's also an importance <laughs> of teaching people how to think and I, I don't even know if it's critical thinking necessarily but you know when you look at Carol de work and when you look at the fMRIs of you know someone who's got a fixed mindset trying to solve a problem and it's basically you know there's not a lot of activity and yeah. then you look at it someone who's got you know a growth mindset who's trying to solve the same problem and it's like you know it's like the 4th of July um, yeah. which means you know the fixed mindset is su- their brain is suggesting well I can't solve the problem so I'm not even gonna try you know, versus the the growth mindset in the game, they're trying to link as many possible neurons together and try and identify as many patterns as possible to solve the problem. How do we teach people how to think in a way that might, as a natural consequence, produce, you know, growth orientation?
1: That's a cracking question. I, I, I wonder whether... How I want to respond to that is we have to teach people that you shouldn't believe everything you think because mm. we're all idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Half of the stuff that goes through our brain mm. is, like, just crap. It's inaccurate, it's illogical. Even when we think we're incredibly right about a situation, like, we we have this in- bias and we're, we're not accurate. And I think I, I worry about we're going down this path of, I have to get all my thoughts right before I can act rather than, man, Is is it
0: having to get, is it, is it really about getting people to have their thoughts right or just getting them to think in the first place? Because to me it would think and this is a pure assumption here and that's why i, I was really excited to ask you this question because yeah. you know it's it's one thing for us to you know think well our, our thoughts are where they need to be but we can think yeah. differently than the way that we are and how do we think differently and i don't know like my my guess was well it's the way that we direct the brain is through questions and so yeah. you know my assumption was one of the best ways that we can develop a growth mindset is by questioning things and by asking questions yeah. and trying to provoke new new connections in our brain that would ultimately, you know, encourage activity and thoughts that we've never had before.
1: Yeah, I think what you're talking about is self-awareness, really, mm. aren't you? Like critical thinking and challenging, well, is that accurate? Why do I have that? Where does that come from? And I I mean, what we talk about in our research is the ability to sit with discomfort. Mm. And, and the problem is most people can't. Um, you know, when when they feel uncomfortable, they go, oh, that feels like crap, so let me grab some wine or let me watch a screen Mm -hmm. or let me interact with someone. And I I think what you're talking about is just the capacity to reflect and analyse but almost be curious about our thoughts rather Mm -hmm. than, oh, I shouldn't be thinking that way. It's kind of like, well, why am I thinking that way? How often do I do that? Do I do that in other areas of my life? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. What we need to teach people is critical thinking and the ability to almost be curious and have a playful relationship with their own brain. And Kevin. Yeah, and Kevin. And, you know, if I think about myself, during first lockdown, like at the start of 2020, we had a record year booked in, like, it was going to be our best year ever. And when COVID hit, like, just things started to get cancelled and I just saw it all disappear. And I sat on the lounge and watched Tiger King and drank wine out of the bottle for a couple of days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was just like, my wife kind of looked at me and went, is this going to last much longer? And I said, just give me one more day. One more day. And, yeah, I just kind of went, I think, I thought, I thought that was a really functional response because I was in grief about all yeah. this hard work I'd done. And then I went, all right. Get your crap together. And I thought, all right, what here, you're going to do this business wise. I got a counselor, like I went and saw a psychologist, and I went, all right, I'm using this as an opportunity to reassess. And I felt crap and I felt terrible, and I predicted disaster, but I sat with all that crap and I went, why does that trigger this? And, you know, if I'm not doing 130 keynotes a year, well, who am I? And, I used that I've never gone through so much turmoil and crap but I just really used it as an opportunity to understand why I was reacting who was I supposed to be where do I want to go and the the amount of growth that came out of that was yeah, wow. huge but I had to sit with it and really like get in the trenches with it and fight it out for a, a long period of time to, to evolve. So, I, I yeah, I think you bang on is the ability to be curious and playful and reflect on our thoughts rather than be afraid of them. Oh, I shouldn't be thinking that or that's a terrible way. Why do I do that? You know, rather than sort of this combative relationship with our thoughts and emotions, much more curiosity. Um-
0: my next question is going to is going to be a two parter. Uh, another one of the things that I've observed, you know, as an obsessive re- performance researcher and practitioner, is the importance of routines. Yeah. Um, you know, because oftentimes, you know, we are a product of not just the way that we think, but the way that we act and the way that we do consistently. And if we have a set of routines that if we do them consistently, as a natural consequence, they produce certain behaviours. They produce certain outcomes. You know, yeah. there in some cases, you know, one, two, three, five, ten 10 percenters, you know, that can actually affect totally. performance. So I, I guess my first question to you is what are some of the, what would be the top number one or the top three routines that you've identified that really support creating performance as a natural outcome? Because again, I think too many people focus on performance and not on yeah. what are the things that if I do them consistently, performance happens as a natural consequence.
1: Yeah, that's a cracking question. I love it. Um, I mean, personally, for me, what I've found is there's some essentials. I call it my bedrock. So, number one is connection with with someone, like a quality interaction, whether it's my wife, my kids, some of my mates, family members. So, that connection and feeling supported by others is number one. Number two for me is definitely movement, physical activity, um, whether it's weight training or going for a walk or cardio like that ability to move and and I'm think you know I'm thinking this I'm saying this to business people rather than elite athletes so the movement definitely the third one would be um, stillness and practice of some sort of mindfulness or meditation or whatever you want to call it but that ability to calm your brain to really relax your body that recovery piece. And the fourth one I'd say, and this is something I've only just gotten into over the last couple of years, is that ability to journal and kind of write down your thoughts. And I always thought that was a massive wank and I just went, well, oh, there's no way I'm ever doing that. Like I'm not doing journaling. But I started to do it and it, it made a profound impact because that I ability, that. yeah, because that ability to get your thoughts on paper is... Um, is extraordinary where you start to, and it's almost like that Kevin concept of can you externalize them? When you write them on paper, they're truly external and you go, that's a freaking stupid thing to myself or that's inaccurate or God damn, that comes up so often. Why is that a pattern I have over and over again? So for me, those, daily, it's those four things mm. keep me well, keep me focused, keep me energized um, and help me. Constantly evolve
0: now. Here's the the second part of this question because I've experienced this in my own life Uh, I've seen my clients experience this I've seen athletes experience this Um, and even in some cases, you know elite um, operatives What I've discovered and what I've seen through my own experience observing others is it gets to a point where all of a sudden your life becomes or feels like a prison of routines where we're doing the same routines over and over and over and over. And at first, it's interesting. It's new. We've got curiosity. It's exciting. There's, it feels like variety. But after three, four, five, and let's call it you know, the 10,000 hours, the 10-year mark, yeah, yeah. you start yeah. to look at these routines and go, man, I'm fucking bored. Like yeah. I'm doing the same thing every fucking day, and I'm bored. And this is where I see people make the mistake because they go, all right, I need to change things. And so, yeah. they stop the routines and all of the benefits and all of the natural outcomes that were produced as a result of those routines start to falter and yeah. you know, performance is affected. Whereas one of the things that I've been on the journey to do is how do we take these routines that when they're practiced over you know, consistently over a period of time, actually create an incredible life, but it can create the perspective after time that, well, hang on, my incredible life is only a product of these routines that I have to do every day, but now yeah. these routines feel like a prison and yeah, I'm bored. Yeah. How have you identified ways that you can bring life to old routines or life to the existing routines that we do so that we don't sometimes feel bored? So that we don't sometimes feel like we're in a prison of routines, regardless because and this is what I've seen, you know, I've I've created enormous levels of success and wealth myself, but I found myself, yeah. you know, over the last few years having periods, you know, a, a couple of days or in some cases a couple of weeks where I'm just fucking bored. Like I'm like yeah, so bored, know. I'm like, oh, this is just I'm so bored. Like there's nothing and again I've, I've found my ways to be able to overcome that, but I'm, and and I'll tell you right now, one of the things, key ways that I found to overcome that is through learning, and through yeah. identifying new things that I can learn that will add value to my existing routines, or by learning, identifying, you know, new skills that I want to learn that are aligned with existing values, and it just provides an extra, you know, I guess a bit of vitality, um, because as you probably know from Dan Pink's work, you know, mastery is you know it's it's certainly the beginner mind it's 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 having that student mind but it's that understanding that if we get to the point where we feel like we know everything we get bored and we want to check out yeah. what are some yeah. of the ways that you've identified to prevent the um uh cage feeling or the prison feeling you know from the routines that we do every day for the people who go but i don't want to do the same thing every day i want to i want to you know have a lot of variety in my life
1: yeah i'm um... <sighs> I find that hard to relate to because I love routine, like properly love it. Um, I train, you know, every day and eat the same thing every day. And, yeah, you know, I, I like I love routine. And one of the biggest things, we were looking at athletes that retire, you know, they find that so difficult. I was talking to Shane Webkey about this. Yeah, right. And he said, when I retired, and he's a real down-to-earth country boy. He said, I didn't care that people weren't yelling my name anymore. He said, what I missed was the structure and routine. Yes. And he said, everyone I spoke to said the same thing. You know, I've got to be at training. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. So I 100% agree with you that routine is absolutely essential. I think how I've done it is each, so there's two things. One is really reflect on progress and spend a lot of time reflecting on growth and mastery. So too often we do great stuff and we go, yeah, yeah, that was awesome, and we move on. And we don't spend enough time kind of celebrating and reflecting how we're growing, how we're evolving. And what I've found in my work and personally is that when we really analyze and pull apart growth and development, it's so inspiring and it just adds so much like interest and fun to the thing we're doing. So that would be my first one. The second one is just, I mean, what I do is add a little bit of variety. Because even with COVID and being locked down, I went to my physio and I went, mate, I've got all these injuries from football and, you know, martial arts and all this stuff. I said, how would you put me back together? Like, just give me a routine. And I started to follow that and, and I was still training, but I was training something different. Mm. So just adding a bit of variety into what we do. And each year I try and learn something new. Like right now I'm focusing on drawing and art, yeah, you know, which is just so That's not me.
0: So good for the brain though.
1: So my answer to that question is, oh, totally. And I'm doing it with my daughters too, oh, which wow. is amazing. That's incredible. And we get that quality time we're hanging out. So the answer to the question is, Reflect on progress more because it makes you come alive. Mm. And two, just add a bit of variety and 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 change things up. So that would be my answer. What about, I mean, you, it sounds like you do the same thing with learning.
0: Yeah. Like for me, I kind of reached this stage and it was during COVID where I was, you know, I was, there was a lot of stress and I just got to the point where I was so fucking over COVID. I was so fucking over business. I was so, I, I was just getting to the point where I was like, I am just bored with life and I wasn't, and I, I just want to make sure everyone's clear on this. I wasn't, you know, thinking about end of life or anything like that, but I was just fucking bored. Um, yeah. But one of the things that I realized when I sat down and I, you know, I started to do some personal reflection is these routines got me to where I am, you know, and it yeah. was just not a matter of relinquishing the routines, but a matter of tuning the routines and finding new ways to do the routines that added you know, a perspective that was new. So it felt like I was doing something different, you know, because oftentimes people come to me and say, uh, you know, oh, I'm, I'm looking for this result and I, and I do this with my higher my, my, my end clients. And they'll come to me and say, well, look, I've been with you now for nine months and, I, and I'm still trying to get this result. And I'll say, well, are you doing these routines consistently? Or are you doing these routines? Yes. Are you doing them consistently every day? No. And so well, why are you expecting this result when you're not doing the things that are required in order to get them? And I think this is the challenge that a lot of people have. They don't realize and and I, and, I, and, I don't, and I'm very conscious of the language I'm using here high performance is a prison of routines yeah and most people go well Consistent I don't right. <laughs> I don't want to live that way and it's all fine what i've identified the lack of routines increases the lack of consistency yeah the abundance of routines increases the abundance of consistency and you look at it not just from a consistency a performance perspective you look at it also from the mental health perspective you know i'm into working with horses and dogs and, and humans as well. And one of the things that I know when I work with a dog, I'm, I'm training a dog right now. I've got an um, uh, 11-month-old little Alsatian. He's been trained for pr- protection work. And you know he gets trained twice a day, every day. But yeah. what's really interesting is he's got enormous amounts of structure, enormous amounts of routine. He has to work for every single meal, and he's a really healthy, happy dog. But what's really interesting is I've got another mate who's got a, um, a 10-month-old German Shepherd who bought it around the same time and he provides no structure, no discipline, no routines for the dog. And the dog is a fucking psychopath. It's chewing (laughs) things up, it's digging holes, it's pissing on everything, it's jumping on people. You know, it's an absolute psychopath. And what I've learned is, that if you don't provide structure, routines, and boundaries for a dog, then it's going, to become, it's going to misbehave because it's not going to know how to behave. And I think humans are exactly the same. If we don't have structure and routines, if we don't know what to do and we get given absolute freedom, oftentimes that freedom comes at an incredible cost.
1: Yeah. And even you think about kids that are neglected. Mm. like there's no there's no structure there's no boundaries there's no rules I think you bang on
0: and you know part of I've been exposed to you know many aspects of addiction therapy I, I had a, uh, a substance problem when I was 19 um, when I was addicted to amphetamines for about nine months and one of the things that has come from that is my awareness of my uh, addictive drivers but also the awareness of one of the things that keeps me healthy. And it's not just as someone who's got experience with addiction. I've seen this with my own clients. The more routines that I have in my life, the more structure I have in my life, the healthier I am. The mentally, he- I'm more mentally healthy. I'm more physically healthy. My relationships, you know, I've greater health.
1: Yeah. I was talking to a mate who runs a depression clinic in the U S and one of the things he said, we're moving away from trying to get rid of all those depressive thoughts and get people into much more like healthy routines and behaviors. And literally, okay, you got out of bed at 11, we're going to focus on getting you out of bed at 10 and getting dressed and just leaving the house. And what he was talking about is these getting these people with severe depression to get into routines mm. and and have some sort of structure was absolutely essential. And he said it's one of the biggest drivers for their improvement.
0: Wow. Dr. Adam Fraser, mate, I could literally keep talking to you for (laughs) fucking (laughs) hours. This is going to have to be part one, Paul. We're going to have to get um, Dr. Adam (laughs) Fraser back for part two. Mate, this has been phenomenal. You've just written a book, Strive, um, um, and you've also written another book called The Third Space. Yes. So where can people... um, find these books where can people find these books where can people find out more about you
1: just um my website which is dradamfraser.com and uh you know all the resources are on there and um they can engage with me on all the socials but i've seriously enjoyed this like i'm buzzing after this conversation <laughs> and um yeah it's fascinating you know some cracking questions that got me to think about things and the best part was many points i was like oh god i don't know i don't know what the answer to that is that's beautiful. so yeah it that's really beautiful. made me think yeah that's
0: beautiful um uh, larry king said the best question to ask someone is one that they've never been asked before that makes them think differently uh, yeah was- we well
1: you you, you hit that about five times
0: thank you so much yeah. like i said this is going to have to be mate, i i almost feel compelled to say we should do a podcast together at some point in the future <laughs> i don't know because we're both obsessed about
1: i'm up for it
0: <laughs> the same things but either way we're going to get you back on unstoppable again uh for those you'd like to find out more about dr adam fraser check out dradamfraser.com he's also on twitter instagram and linkedin as well best piece of advice you've ever received dr adam
1: best piece of advice from a guy called Colin James. And he said, the greatest lesson I've ever learned is nowhere anywhere, anywhere in the world does people actually know what the hell's going on. And he's like, every CEO I sit down with, you know, in a meeting, sits there and goes, yeah, we'll do this, this. And then later on goes, how the hell am I pulling that off? <laughs> so just understand that no one knows what they're doing. <laughs> We're,
0: all We're all working it out. It We're yeah. all working it out. We're all adults <laughs> with with children in adult bodies yeah. are doing the best that we can. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Dr. Adam Fraser, and you've been listening to Unstoppable. Thanks, mate. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. We do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way. And we're looking at five key areas. We're looking at your psychology. We're looking at your marketing, your sales, your leadership, and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly. So if you'd like to find out more information, KerwinRay.com.